0: The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to This Must Be The Place. You're listening to Elizabeth Taylor of RMIT University. And today's episode is kind of two two things, but they're related. It's about a place, and it's about a person who was influential in making that place. The place is what's called Newlands Estate, or just Newlands, which is not properly a suburb. It's part of Coburg North in Melbourne's north, and it was an area developed by the Housing Commission in the 1940s and 1950s, roughly bounded by the Marion and Edgar's Creek, Murray Road, and Elizabeth Street. It's really recognisable mainly from the little red brick houses, And Newlands owes part of its design to, surprisingly perhaps, an avant-garde Viennese-trained planner and later a very influential architect called Ernest Fuchs. Newlands was one of Fuchs's first projects he undertook after emigrating to Melbourne, having fled the war in Austria. So later on, you'll be hearing me interviewing Kate Hall, who's someone living what David calls the Newlands dream today. But first, we're going to hear from David interviewing architect Catherine Townsend, who's done a lot of research on Ernest Fuchs
2: Who is Fuchs? Who are we dealing with here?
0: Okay, um, Ernest Fuchs was born in 1906 in um, the former um, Austro-Hungarian Empire in Pressburg moved to Vienna when he was two and that city ended up being quite formative on him. He was an architect town planner, author artist, photographer traveller
2: was he all those things like from the beginning or did he add new things to his palette as he went through?
0: Nearly all of those interests were formed within the first year or two of university. Okay. And also, he was really, really interested in and participated in modern dance. Um, at university, he was equally interested in both architecture and dance. And he actually enrolled concurrently in his architecture degree with uh, modern dance training as well with Gertrude Bodenweiser who was, ran a Rudolf von Lubben dance school in Vienna. Modern or free dance was really popular at the time and for, for a long time he thought that was going to be his... Really? That would be his path and that architecture was something secondary. Then he went on holiday to Hellerau, which was a dance theatre, modern art community in Germany, but uh, designed by Heinrich Tessenau. And the architecture there convinced him that modern architecture was actually where it was at, and so he ditched the, the dance.
2: What year are we talking about So
0: effort? that... I think he ditched Dance in 1926. He began his architecture degree in 1924. He was always really interested not just in architecture but in wider avant-garde, the the wider avant-garde life in, in Vienna. Even though he claimed at the time to throw himself back into architecture, he actually did it again and decided to enrol in a arts degree at the University of Vienna and study psychology. He was, um, who did he study with? Someone called Carl um, Brüller. He was, who was, yeah, Carl Brüller, and who was actually the thesis advisor to Karl Popper. and quite an influential psychologist. He studied with him for two years, but then felt that that faculty hadn't accepted uh, Freud and Jung enough and went back to his architecture degree.
2: So was was Fuchs kind of... I mean, he sounds like a bit of a dilettante, no judgement implied. Yeah, indeed. But but is he he from a wealthy family that that could indulge him in this kind of thing?
0: I'd probably call him a polymath rather than a dilettante, but I think dilettante is also a fair description. Yes, his family must have had a certain amount of wealth. The most I know is that his father was a merchant.
2: Okay, so he eventually decides to stick to architecture. He goes through an architecture degree. He does a PhD. Yes. Where does he do that?
0: So he does that again at the Technische Hochschule in Vienna. And that degree really, the PhD really is in town planning. And he became the lecturer in town planning was Carl Brunner who appears to at at the Technische Hochschule that he appears to influence folks considerably but he wasn't his dissertation um, supervisor because he was in Columbia, planning Columbia or something. Mm -hmm. The PhD was on linear cities and really was a good summary of I don't know avant-garde town planning at the time. Mostly looking at the um, German town planners. The people he looked at most were Paul Wolf or mm-hmm. Paul Wolf, mm. um Hans Ludwig Sirk's, and Martin Machlor. But he also looked at Le Corbusier and his linear city. Here he did work experience with Le Corbusier. I think about six weeks. He claimed it was the most ex- uh, influential experience of his life. Mm-hmm. He must have known what. May was doing because Mm. he ends up writing for him his all about linear cities and yes um, he does the is it Magnitogorsk that May begins planning and yeah yeah.
2: and then so we're talking early 1930s by this stage so
0: he finishes his PhD in 1932 right while he's doing his PhD, so in the last years of his architecture degree, he had to do a master class with one of the teachers, which basically meant that you were unpaid labour in their atelier. So Fuchs worked for his one of his professors, Siegfried Tice, in the Pact of Tice and Yarks, from 29 onwards, and he worked for him throughout his PhD as well. While he was there, he worked on the Hochhaus Herringus, which was the first... Skyscraper built in Vienna. That was part of the larger, um, you know, Viennese council hi- housing project, the Gemeindebauten. And Fuchs had actually, even when he was in his early years of his undergraduate, every summer holidays he would actually work on Gemeindebauten projects. So he had quite a lot of experience on on that housing form. Was he
2: doing this kind of thing? Was there an ideology involved?
0: He certainly was a member of the Socialist Students Association but more than that I can't say. I know that his surviving friends all say he's a lefty Mm. and certainly it would appear he was at the time. Mm. I mean you've got so many competing ideas at that time you've got the six story Hoff House form around the courtyard but then you've also got that the Verkwood Seedlung promoting the sort of suburban Development, which was considered in Europe at that time really avant garde. It's a jump for us to think of suburban housing as avant garde, but in cities that were mostly multiple story dwellings and had been for hundreds of years. Yeah, walking
2: cities largely, I guess, up to that point.
0: Yeah, so the single dwelling was considered quite radical.
2: So in the 1930s, I mean, we're, we're talking this way in the knowledge that he's going to end up in Australia by the end of that decade. Yeah. And it's, you know, so there's a few things that that transpire, but obviously, in a manner of speaking, he doesn't leave Europe of his own free will.
0: No. So he, he finishes his PhD, he, in partnership with some people that he'd worked with, in his professor's office, he forms his own firm, Atelier Bau und Wolling, and they start winning competitions. And you know, it seems that his career was going really well. And then it all seems to vanish just as the Austrian Civil War happens at the beginning of 1934. Mm-hmm. And the partnership dissolves, and within two weeks of that civil war, Fuchs starts working in Linz. And he works there for six months. Mm-hmm. And then he goes back to Vienna and he kind of cobbles together work. From then on, I mean, he wins a competition. He does design a tenement block. But mostly I think his income is coming from sort of teaching at the equivalent of the University of the Third Age. Wow. And, and bits. Of, I don't think he even gets published in that period. He seems poised to do some really exciting things. And then 34 and the Austro-Fascist thing occurs and his life, starts going nowhere. He'd had tuberculosis and had met the woman who became his wife in a tuberculosis sanatorium in Venice, and they'd been corresponding. Her family had left uh, Europe in 1935, and she basically just kept sending him letters saying, get out, get out. And finally, after the Anschluss, when the Nazis take over Austria, things start to get really, really nasty for Jews in Vienna. His letters start to get pretty dark in tone and finally he agrees that he'll try and get out and yeah. starts writing all around the world to try and get to get a visa to leave and finally Australia says yes we'll take you and essentially he comes here because we're the first people that say we'll take you so then he rang up Nomi in the middle of the night and said marry me <laughs> And Where was she at this she, she was in Canada. She's oh, in Montreal at this yeah. point in time. And she says maybe. He leaves Vienna under pretense of going on a skiing holiday and goes to Norway and then gets on a boat to leave for Australia via Canada. Anyway, he gets to Canada, convinces her to marry him and... I think they're married within three days of him getting there and then they arrive in Australia.
2: So he gets to Melbourne, he comes to Melbourne? Yeah, he Stra- chooses Stra- Melbourne
0: because he knew a couple of other architects who were going to Sydney and he thought that it was wiser to go somewhere where there was less competition. Less
2: competition. Because he was the greatest. <laughs> the That's three a, of them were the greatest I architects <laughs> yeah. ever and they were going to take Australia by storm. D- I
0: don't know. I don't know. I think that his career meant a lot to him. Mm. I think that was his focus and certainly in the first decade or two in Australia his career is is everything and he's putting everything into it. How
2: quickly does he fall in with with Frank Heath because this is this is the interesting what well, it's all interesting but this is what brings us eventually to him and possibly in Brackets Heath preparing the plan for Newlands.
0: Yeah he gets a job with Frank Heath within six weeks of coming to Australia. I think he does some work temporarily drafting for some timber merchants, drawing up some kilns for drying timber or something like that. But he starts work really quickly with Heath.
2: Maybe you could explain to our listeners who Heath was. You or would I be can. you would yeah.
0: be better placed to answer that. Yes, well answer. I
2: mean Heath is a he's a very interesting figure in himself having in fact oddly enough listeners to our podcast will uh, will remember my fairly recent rumination on Faulkner Cemetery, which uh, Heath's father designed, and Heath grew up there. When you think about the little boy growing up in the cemetery, you feel a bit weird about that, but Heath—that's that was Heath's early life, apparently, and his father Charles was an architect. Heath seems to be a fairly unimportant and uninteresting architect uh, through the 1930s, and then suddenly his career picks up huge momentum, particularly when he becomes... I think he's the fourth prize winner in the Architects' Competition for the Housing Commission of Victoria, which mm-hmm. is newly established at that stage. Yeah. And with that, um, you get all kinds of benefits, one of which is you sit on the Architects' Panel. So his Little Heath and the, the, big, the big names of... Um, some big names of Melbourne architecture in the, in the late 1930s. And he also um, starts getting, I guess, commissions, basically, to do, uh, to do work for the Housing Commission, which which obviously means a lot to his business. Mm. So, we're sort of assuming, I think, that uh, Fuchs comes along almost at this, at the yeah, right time well, to because be it's, a part it's, of this. It's,
0: it's towards the end of nineteen thirty nine. Mm. I know that the work wasn't very well paid. His wife earned more in a factory and then as a secretary, but it was a professional job, and it was something that he could continue working as a town planner slash architect which was immensely important and difficult to work to get at that point mm. in time
2: i'm interested in trying to figure out like you wonder about Heath's, heath he suddenly blossoms in the early 40s and he becomes um the secretary of the town planning association and things like that and you're like is heath kind of a front for people more talented than himself i guess is to put it mm, bluntly mm, that's, mm, my, mm. that's my that's my what's what i'm wondering
0: well, we're never really going to know the answer to exactly. that, are we? No, that that, that would be right. that, that would be my first statement. Mm. Certainly, Fuchs does consider himself to have put in significant work on those projects. His wife considered him to have done all of the projects, but the reminiscences of someone in their 90s about what happened 50 mm. years ago, mm. it, I take them with some... I, I give them in some areas a lot of weight and in others less weight
2: We should explain to the listeners that Mr and Mrs Fuchs are no longer with us Yes, yeah.
0: having been born in 1906 and Well, yeah, 19... well Naomi <laughs> his wife was 103 when she died, mm. but yes, she is dead now I think what you can say is that during the time that Fuchs was employed by Heath the schemes which he produced, that Heath Producers are considerably more sophisticated than those that occur prior to and post the employment of Torx. Totally true. Which certainly speak to a strong involvement of And Fuchs.
2: These schemes include not only uh, things for the Housing Commission like Newlands, which we'll get to in a second properly, but also plans for expansion of. Regional centres in Victoria yes. for like sort of semi decentralisation schemes, which I I take to be commissioned by particular local governments. So Swan Hill is the first one, and there's a Wangaratta one, and uh, there, I think there might have been Horsham, or yes. a few yes. like that. That they're really they're done to attract government money to to fund expansion uh, and uh, population growth in those centres. But they're they're kind of in a way they're and they're very they're very nice and they're very sensible and logical schemes in lots of ways. But they are also I think kind of showcasing potential uh, more than anything who knows mm, mm, anyway mm. That, that's one of the major things that the Heath um, organisation is doing at that stage in the 1940s mm. and Heath is saying well I'm the secretary of the town planning association and I have this I have this great guy working for me, he probably says something like you know, he, he talks with an accent but he's alright, you know, I don't know
0: I don't know or does he give him that, some kind of imprimatur of authentic modernism I don't know
2: yeah, I guess these are the things we can't know. So tell us about Newlands because I think it's a it's a really delightful place. It's a really mm. it's a really it's a lovely place to visit. Looks still looks great, I think, and it has all these features. Which yeah, you can...
0: um, and certainly Fuchs was involved in that. His mm. signature is all over the drawings that are prepared that are at the State Library of Victoria mm. now. Newlands, it's it really is quite a beautiful subdivision, isn't it? And I think the thing that strikes me about it is how well the streets actually fit with the topography. and it's quite a lovely undulating area of land near the Merry Creek. and there's quite a lot of open space in the subdivision. and the way that it has been laid out that almost every block of land gets a view of either the creek or open parkland, which is unusual for suburban subdivision at the time. In Australia,
2: he's got a mixture of housing types there. He's got some apartments, and some
0: uh, semi-detached, some
2: completely detached, some detached,
0: yeah. and there's yeah. they have the that quite innovative shop house.
2: This and there's a shopping centre which has now been demolished. It's
0: demolished some yes. time ago now. But
2: that was a so was shopkeepers who would live above uh, their yeah. or behind their shops.
0: It's sort of yeah, above and behind mm. yeah, because mm. it was a two story arrangement. I mean, essentially it's. Re- replicating a 19th century form in a slightly modern way. But that in itself was unusual because I think there'd been in most modern development, contemporary developments, um, there'd been a split of home and work and this was still keeping the two together.
2: And this is what are we? What are we talking? Early, like this is during the war, is it being built? In is it? The yeah, yeah, yeah. So the
0: pr- the pr- plans are prepared, I think, from forty one to forty three, and it begins mm. construction in forty three. It's not finished until the fifties, but it is a very large mm. um, estate.
2: And it's it's essentially um, industrial worker housing because a little to the north, they start open up the Kodak factory. Yeah, um, sometime later, and probably not that much later. Come to think of it, but. Um, there's there's quite a few uh, factories and, and an industrial area to the north. And this is part of the Housing Commission creating these kinds of places, you know, where people can live close to their place of employment. And it's also, I think it's the third Housing Commission uh, estate in Melbourne. And it's possibly not quite the last, but it's one of the last where they're actually um, doing things like building uh, a really major sort of shopping centre kind of. Major for the time mm, yeah. kind of shopping centre, and they they provide some shops later on in some other subdivisions. But they they really trying to retreat from the the um, the provision of anything other than housing.
0: Ah, uh, because this one has kindergartens and it, there's a senior citizen centre. And Is that
2: part of the? Oh, original...
0: not sure.
2: Right.
0: And I, there's I mean there's a couple of other community yeah, function yeah. buildings in there, yeah. aren't there? Mm. Yeah.
2: So in, in that sense, it's it's got a whole um, swathe of things there that are really um, quite. Unusual and interesting for the time, and I think he does himself quite a quite a credit there. Is there? Do you get a sense of why uh, Fuchs stopped? A why he stopped working for Heath, and why he kind of moved out of the planning field?
0: It wasn't by choice that he moved out of the planning field. He really, really wanted to stay in planning because after doing his PhD, that that really was where he saw his mm. talent. Mm. Um, I mean because during his time at the Housing Commission or, or sorry I should say with Frank Heath he wrote X-Ray the City yeah. and and he's also writing for Home Beautiful and it's sort of, an, and Australian Quarterly he's establishing himself as an author here yeah. and mostly writing about town planning
2: Great, and this sounds patronising but great command of English he's, he, he writes really well I think in English
0: His wife checked everything that he wrote Mm. and she spoke, I think, about nine languages and she was fluent in all of them. So she was originally Russian and I think English is her sixth language. So she would check everything that um, he wrote. He always felt that he couldn't do justice to his thoughts in English, but I know that she did help a lot Mm. with that.
2: Mm how he got out of
0: um yeah so he'd been positioning himself creating you know a name for himself as a a town planner in australia and he applied for so many jobs Mm. as town planners and he was rejected by every single one i think there comes a point and i won't know exactly why he left but i think he He's sick of playing sick and fiddle. He wants to do something more. He can't get a job as a town planner, which in part he saw as anti-Semitism, but it may be a more complex... It might just be an anti-European sentiment. It may just have been difficult to get town planning Mm. jobs. Mm. So he actually starts his own architectural practice at a time when the Jewish community in Melbourne is burgeoning. And he begins to design luxury homes and Jewish institutional buildings. And that becomes the focus of of the rest of his career. I should also say that during the 40s he also lectured at RMIT. I think he... His claim is that he was the first town planning lecturer in Australia, as in that he was solely appointed to lecture on town planning. I mean, there must have been town planning lectures given. When, when was he doing that? So he was he started from 1944 to 54. Okay. He worked at RMIT
2: because he, he here at the University of Melbourne he did some lectures in 49 with I think Heath was running a, a some kind of show.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: And um, uh, Fuchs was part of that.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Um, and I mean, he he also I mean he did public lecturing throughout his entire career, and he would lecture on his travels and show all of the marvelous travel slides that he had because he travelled widely. He and Naomi had been to I don't know over a hundred different countries, and they they travelled in the sixties and and yeah from the late fifties onwards when travel became possible and not affordable, but within their reach, um, they travelled all through Africa, south of south. America
2: and he Ex- was generating art out of Yes, those of out of exhibits.
0: those and he begins his art exhibitions he starts them in the 40s as well. So he established himself as quite a name mm. as an artist, a town planner and then he begins his own architect practice. He he know by then he knows a lot of the Jewish community in Melbourne. And then he and he begins designing houses. I think he'd done a couple of private jobs, you know, while he was still working for Heath, but then he strikes out on his own. Mm. And through the 50s and 60s, I mean, he essentially gives, he shapes the form of the modern Jewish community in Melbourne, just mm. the sheer number of commissions. It's like, I think there's over 240 built works and more projects that were never built. And... He designed numerous Jewish institutional buildings, including Mount Scopus School, with Anatole Kagan I should acknowledge, Um, B'nai B'rith in St Kilda, Addis Israel Synagogue in Elstonwick, um, Jewish Community Centre in Canberra, and the Shevra Kadisha Burial Society in St Kilda. Um, and it's mostly institutional buildings and houses for the 50s and 60s. It starts doing larger work in the 70s.
2: Let's get back to Newlands. and yep. let's, um, I don't really know. I don't know. Should I, I'll try and throw to Elizabeth doing an yeah. interview tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Newlands is really the beginning of quite an illustrious, uh, what, 40-year career in, in Australia? 30? Yeah. 30? 40? No, 40. 40, cause he, 40. Does,
0: he, he works right to his death in 85.
2: Right, okay. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth has done some... Um, trekking around in in Newlands and talking to people who are living the Newlands dream even today.
1: So I'm sitting here today, it's a thirty, what's the temperature today? Thirty-three. Thirty-three and it feels that and then some afternoon in February down at the um, Well, not actually inside the pool. Mm -hmm. We're next to the Coburg Olympic Pool uh, on the side of the Merry Creek. You can probably hear some birds, a bit of crickets, and the occasional, oh, more than occasional bonk (laughs) of here, someone's about to go off now. Mm -hmm. Very trepidatiously, someone's going to jump into the diving pool. And I'm sitting here with Catherine or Kate. Either, Kate's fine. Paul, who's a very active member of the Newlands. That's the Newlands community. Newlands is also under a flight path, so I had to kind of cut that bit out. Kate's lived in Newlands for 10 years with her husband and her daughter, and soon after she moved in, she and some other locals found out that the local uh, Olympic pool was soon to close.
3: And an early feature we noticed of this area was really good provision of parkland it was through those parks everywhere that we met local mothers. And quite a few of us banded together to campaign to get the pool reopened, and that took two years.
1: Kate is active in several local groups, there's the Friends of Coburg Olympic Pool Group, Save Coburg Olympic Pool, although it's sort of been saved, and also a Newlands blog. Called
3: Newlands Community News, and I admin the Facebook wing of that. and. Uh, a very active campaign was the campaign to get a high school for Coburg, which um, impacted strongly on this area.
1: And what do you think is distinctive about Newlands area?
3: Well, Newlands was designed. It was um, based on you will know more than about this than me. The Garden City concept is that what it's called Garden City, and um, so it was always a planned. Um, community with, sh- with the shopping centre and the primary school and lots of parkland and it ha- always had a strong community feel, cohesive community and us newer residents who were moved in as 1st home buyers um, uh, we have found that that community feel continues. Um, I should say they were the whole estate was built as housing commission for mainly aimed for return servicemen in uh, 1943, it was started. So we are a bit of a new wave, but there is a lot of connections between the past and the present. And that community feel um, that was evident in the past is still evident now.
1: So when you heard the pool was closing and you banded together to to save it, what did it? Was it just you wanted somewhere to swim, or you thought it was represented something about?
3: Uh, the pool has functioned as a community meeting space, very much a village square for the area. Because when you think about it, there's not many um, public spaces where people gather these days. They don't gather at the shopping centre. That was planned for meeting. They don't I gather at Newlands Pizza. Yeah. <laughs> Newlands Pizza Plus. <laughs> uh, not so much. Sometimes <laughs> the primary school, of course, has been a great cohesive um, element. Um, And funnily enough, the uh, shopping complex at the new um, Kodak, ex-Kodak, which is now Coburg Hill. That actually is a place where you bump into people you know. But uh, this pool really did and does function as a um, sort of village square. On warm nights, people take picnics and whole families will go there for hours. And it really is a meeting space. Of course, um, obviously the swimming is a a big part of it as well and also being able to just cool down in the hot weather because these houses are small red brick houses which are fine for one day of heat but after a few days they're a small red brick oven and most don't have air conditioning and so it is a great place to come and cool down sit under the trees and meet friends so we yeah we felt it was a very very valuable resource that needed to be retained and um, it was very easy to get a lot of community support. We connected with dear old Frank Cox, who um, turned the first, who was an ex-mayor for many years, and he had turned the first sod for it. And actually, was responsible for a lot of the infrastructure around here. And um, he spoke at an event we held. We got about 700 people in the middle of winter, just to show how much support there was for the pool. And we did crazy things that I wouldn't do now, like having a pool party in the foyer of the council offices in the middle of winter with retro swimming talks and blow-up pools, and um, you know, going rah-rah in the middle of the council meeting. <laughs> but they, it was seen to be a positive campaign, and uh, we succeeded. And um, the good news is that the patronage is has, has actually double what it was back then. Doubled, yeah. yeah, and we've been party to promoting it, and making sure people realise it's on the creek. And we held events called Ride to Pool Day many years in a row where local bands would play. And it was called Ride to Pool to emphasise the fact that it's on this bike path and you can ride here. And We got over a thousand people to those days. So at the front of the pool is an
1: old the old diving board
3: that's right out the front is a fantastic big decal I think you call it covering two huge windows and it's an image from 1967 of a woman called Heather who grew up in this area around the corner from where I live and she was an early big user of the pool and in the swimming club she went on to be a swimming teacher and the photo is taken by her father and it's of her in a lovely bikini at the Newlands High School Swimming Carnival Day, and you can see in the background there's um, just paddocks behind it. All these trees have been planted by the community and council since those days. And our group uh, broke at getting that photo um, to be used by the pool, and it looks beautiful. And Heather, I met through the Newlands High School Facebook group, and she's a lovely um, connector between the past and the present, and she. The stories she tells are so similar to what happens now. Locals with chickens and swapping recipes and plants and children going to the drive-in at night with their dads and families coming down to the pool. It's just really nice. Uh, She really enjoys knowing that that continues today.
1: has um, not, not succeeded in uh,
3: being heritage Yes, well, um, uh, back in 2011 there was the North of Bell heritage, o- heritage Overlay study or something like that by council and their experts recommended that the pool be included on the grounds of um, social importance, aesthetic importance, architectural importance because of the modernist entranceway and local historical importance and It wasn't too restrictive, uh, the the recommendation, because there was still room for the pools to be changed if necessary, the layout of them, but they wanted to keep the beautiful garden setting and preserve the the foyer in particular and just the use of the site as a pool. Unfortunately, um, in spite of all the experts saying it should be included and us backing it up with our work, it came down to the personal taste of councillors who didn't appreciate modernist design, so it got voted out. And so we ended up getting it to a panel which was two years later in 2013 the panel also recommended it be included and recommend but council
1: didn't but then it gets a bit it gets a bit hard to understand but basically everyone involved found it all too hard i then asked a kind of stupid question but i'll leave it on for the tape there's other parts of, of Newlands that are heritage
3: you the school. Yeah, the the primary school is, and in fact, the whole Newlands Estate is heritage listed. Right. Just I apart like a from it,
1: now,
3: <laughs> <later>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the whole estate is heritage listed as a you know very rare example of an early um, garden city planned community. Yeah. What do you think of the uh, parks, as sort of in the small internal? Oh yeah they're wonderful quite a few houses look out on them as well and, and yeah they're great meeting grounds and um, yeah it's a very nice aspect of it it's quite nice because it's undulating topography around here as well which makes it interesting as well it's, it doesn't feel like boring suburbia by any stretch we've got two creeks running through it as well so I do feel quite lucky we were when we were first home buyers it had a stigma that i was that went over my head because i'm not from australia um, The stigma was associated apparently with the ex-Housing Commission red brick, but I didn't, (laughs) didn't bother, you know, I just just didn't, I couldn't, didn't bother me and I couldn't work out why they were so affordable, apparently that was part of it. They are small, we live in a duplex and we're attached to a house that's still Housing Commission, so there's still a mix, but not as much of a mix as when it was fully Housing Commission, and the other thing that's important about it is it was built with a mix, so there's um, two story, three, 2 bedroom three bedroom duplex single and also walk up flats and so there's
1: there was always a mixture which is quite good so for reasons that aren't totally clear not much of newlands is public housing now although it was initially a housing commission estate, it's popular with homeowners now like kate and, and others uh, there is still some public housing remaining but that kind of story of the tenure mix is maybe a story for another day. In any case, Kate was talking about how great it was to see kids she knew going past as we were sitting there, people from the local high school uh, on their bikes, going along the bike path, or coming from the bus in the trees between the pool and the Mary Creek and the rest of the Newlands estate. And a lot of this infrastructure things that the sort of new wave of Newlands community were active in either Retaining, or in most cases actually kind of returning or retaining and when another kid went past on a bike I asked. Do you know that person?
3: Erin! Erin! It's my daughter. Erin! <laughs>
1: <laughs> you do know that person. Oh mind?
3: funny! <laughs> do you mind? She'll just, no, I'll tell her that we've got to be quiet. She might just go off home anyway. <laughs> This is it, you see, active transport to the local yeah, farm, no. high school. Hello, darling. This is Liz, and she's Hi. just interviewing me uh, to talk about Newlands and the community and everything. So that's what good. Nice
0: meeting, formal meetings. Not bad, is it? Not bad. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go home and do my homework yeah. really quickly because Ruby and I yeah, are going to the pool. Fantastic. So, how long are you going to be here? i might go to the pool and you still ha- haven't got back doesn't yeah. matter
3: you've got your key haven't you yeah no but yeah. i'm just saying yeah no, at that's home, fine at the pool. yeah great that's good it's a good day for it have fun <laughs> that's the beauty you see she's yeah. 12 and we can they can go alone now because it's
1: local and oh my god is it all path along the way yeah. here oh that's awesome oh it's just so
3: good the other day the girls went off to the pool by themselves the day before high school started and we just pinch ourselves, us mums, because if we didn't have the school and Paul, she'd be doing a bus and a train, minimum, to high school, and God knows what we'd do on hot days, and that little
1: dog box place, so it's
0: just, yeah, that actually sums pestering. it up.
1: There's sort of irony in much of Kate's experience of Newlands, in that most of her kind of involvement in the community has been around calling for facilities that were initially there or that were at least initially planned by people like Fuchs and along the kind of principles of the housing commission and post-war suburban development in general but which were withdrawn over the years because they came to be seen as too expensive or too hard to retain so it was sort of where shift and then you kind of ask to have them back please I asked Kate whether it might not have been easier to live somewhere where you didn't have to fight to get a uh, recreational facilities or a school. It would have been easier if you'd moved somewhere that already had a pool in the school. (laughs) Well, you have missed out I
3: sometimes think about that. Well, for a start, before I had children, I wouldn't have even, well, I would have thought about the pool, but the rest of it wouldn't have been such an issue. Um, So having children is part of this, I think. Um, but yeah, I sometimes think about how it would have been if we just moved to an area that had everything. And I don't think I would have met so many people or had that strong sense of community because a lot of us, us women who ran the pool campaign, that was the beginning of quite a lot of things, um, including the Newlands News blog and Facebook page. And out of that has come a lot of regular things as a um, clothes swap that happens in a park um, about four times a year. and Yeah, many other things. So, yeah, no, probably that working together obviously uh, did probably make it a more cohesive community.
1: Kate also mentioned the Friday night barbecues, which are held every weekend in summer at the Cook's Reserve in Newlands. And that often features Newlands Pizza Plus. So Newlands has lost some things and gained others and, I guess, improved, no, changed, developed over the years. As a sort of example of that kind of same, same, but different thing, I heard that Heather, the lady featured in the photo at the front of the Coburg pool, back in her day, she and the other kids used to um, ride rafts out of all the old car doors that were dumped into Merry Creek, and they'd ride them down the creek, which is kind of like, that sounds fun, but it's kind of good to not have so many old cars in the creek. And back to, we started the story with Newland's, in terms of its initial design and one of the people involved in in the development of the Newlands estate along drawing heavily on um, European planning and architectural ideas. So Newlands was the start of a long Australian career in mainly in architecture but initially in town planning for Ernest Fuchs so let's return to hearing from Catherine Townsend talking with David Nichols about some of the recent return of interest in Fuchs. Fuchs some exhibitions that have been held recently and some of which are going to be held again.
2: There's, I guess, essentially two incarnations of a Fuchs exhibition and a kind of a reassessment of the the work and, to a lesser extent, maybe the man, uh, what was the, the first exhibition last year, can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, some students from the Melbourne School of Design Architecture Masters program uh, have a subject called Critical and Curatorial Practices in Design, and each year there's an exhibition that the students prepare work for, and last year the theme for it was Ernst Forks. Um, the pieces that the students made were then exhibited in 32 Howitt Road, which was the former Fuchs residence in North Caulfield, alongside a lot of reproductions of archival material. All of the archival material that Fuchs and his wife had kept have been split between different institutions. There's archival material at the Jewish Holocaust Centre, at the University of Melbourne, at the State Library and also at the RMIT Design uh, Archive. I'm not quite sure what the technical term for that one is. Um, And so critical pieces from each of those institutions archive were reproduced and put into the house. And it's quite a lovely experience to be in the house that he designed, looking at the archival material because I think it, it gives it gives the archival material quite a lovely context.
2: Mm. So that this was last that was last year. Yes, and that was that was quite a success. And we have something else coming up uh, in March. In
0: March, yeah, the National Gallery of Victoria is running a Design Week, and the Fuchs exhibition will be held again as part of that Design Week, which is between the sixteenth and twenty sixth of March. I'm not sure of the exact dates that the Fuchs exhibition will be open. And there may be like a larger open, a Fuchs open home program run as part of that as well. Harriet Edquist wrote a catalogue introduction for an exhibition called 45 stories 42 stories i can't remember which about jewish architects and there was three lines on Fuchs in that but m- most of the architects in that were architects that had been roundly ignored for decades mm. and i was the first person to write anything beyond three sentences on Fuchs, pretty much since he since he died um So obviously, yes, there's somewhat more interest in him now, but I think there's somewhat more interest in that cohort of European architects that came here um, from the 30s through the 40s, 50s, 60s, Um, because they were written out of the mainstream modern architectural history.
2: The clients were a particular cohort, not the mainstream in a manner of speaking.
0: I think the, the, the fairest way to comment is to say that until recently the documentation of modern architecture in Australia was scanned and much was left out and only the most notable most noticeable works and architects got written about Mm. and the Jewish Europeans were not the most noticeable or notable at the time and their work Kind of was hidden in plain view, if mm. you know what I mean.
2: Now, just one thing that just occurred to me then, which I particularly since I guess we have listeners all around the world. Is there something unique about the uh, European, let's say Jewish European architects who came to Australia in mid-century? Is there something unique about that about their work, or is it? Can you just see it completely in a global context and say, yeah, that's an example. It happens to be in Melbourne or Australia, but it's it's an example of, of a style and a time.
0: I think that it does happen all over the world. And I think the most notable and interesting point in that is that they continue to be influenced and interested in each other's work. And so a Viennese architect that's living anywhere in the world is much more likely to be looking at what that those other diaspora Viennese architects are doing and following their cues rather than the local cues the, the local situation I mean obviously they make some concessions to, to climate etc but Fuchs and nearly all of the other um, architects their interest is yeah, primarily in what the other Viennese architects are doing
1: From Vienna to Newlands Pizza Plus, you've been listening to This Must Be The Place.